Well, good morning. Thank you guys so much for being here on a rainy uh, time change spring break weekend. So um, we had the perfect storm for lack of church attendance today, but you guys are all on board, so thank you for that. We've been in a short series. We're actually going to end it today where, where we've been talking about spent and uh, we basically started last week by talking about our personal finance. What does Scripture say about it? What are we as believers supposed to be doing about it um, in terms of following Christ and being accountable and all of those things? And today I'm going to take a, a little bit of, of a different angle. I'm still going to be in First Timothy. Um, but today I want to talk about upgrade and uh, just talk about... Um, some, some deep challenges that all of us face. We're all affected by it, including myself, um, and what I'm going to talk about this morning. But um, I want you to be all ears with your heart today. And um, I really think um, this is a message that could change and challenge uh, all of us in this room. America loves upgrades. Um, I know for me personally, um, I love uh, technology upgrades. I love uh, seeing what Apple's about to put out, and uh, I will follow them, and I'll watch uh, the convention and, and the big announcements, and I want to know, how is my phone going to get faster? What's the newest thing on the MacBook? Um, how you know, great is the iPad now? Can it replace my MacBook? Um, I, just, I just like the, the fact of upgrade. And we can look at that in, in a lot of things uh, that are going on a, around us. And we know how the upgrade works. We swap out something for a newer something that was basically doing what the first something was already doing. Uh, we just want the upgrade. Uh, I told you about uh, my grandfather last weekend, but uh, that whole generation would actually fix something if it broke um, it wasn't an excuse to go get something new. They would fix it. And so uh, there wasn't a, a fishing pole in, in his shop that didn't have some type of poxy on it or he had, he had taped it up, something. He, just, he was going to fix it. He was going to make it work. But we're very addicted to the upgrade. Now, these are some magazines. Every one of them came from my home. And so um, these are all Robbie's collection. And, and so... When we look through these just by printed material alone, we are strongly communicated to that we don't have uh, the latest eyewear, that our fishing or hunting equipment is not the best, and I don't fish a lot, and I never hunt, but if I did, it still wouldn't be good e enough, and we don't, we're not making cookies right. And we're doing a lot of things wrong, and we don't have the latest this or that. We don't have enough pottery in our barn. We don't have, there's a lot of stuff that this, that this is communicating to us um, that tells us, hey, uh, there's something out there that I don't have. And the, uh, we're drowning in a current that constantly reminds us of what is not in our lives. Now, here's the problem. Every day, we're saturated with images of what we did not know we did not have until we were made aware of it. So we didn't know that we didn't have the latest eyewear, and we didn't know that we didn't have enough pottery, and we didn't know that we didn't have the right tires on our vehicle. We didn't know those things until we saw it. And this is only one outlet. 
And so we look at those things and we're suddenly aware. And so again, the problem is not what we have, it's the awareness of what we could have. And that becomes a trap for us. It's not a problem with anything I've got or a problem with anything you've got. It's a problem by we become aware of it and then we realize what we could have and somehow that may even translate into what we should have. And so let me give you a life principle that's not isolated to Christianity. It can actually be applied virtually in any area of life, but, it, but it's this. The problem with awareness is that awareness fuels discontentment. The uh, having awareness of what I don't have causes me to have a discontentment. I look at my life and suddenly there's a measurability that says you're not stacking up. You're not, you're not doing the right things. You're not in the greatest destinations. You're not driving the greatest of vehicles. You're not living in the best of neighborhood. And, and suddenly this cloud of discontentment can settle on our lives, even as followers of Jesus who are living out the greatest of hopes. We can be stricken and paralyzed with this feeling of discontentment. And the reason, again, we are discontent is because we're constantly viewing what other people have that we could have. And this relates to everything from the phone in our hand to the hardware on our cabinets to the heights of our ceiling. We look around and we say, well, they have eight-foot ceilings or ten-foot ceilings. I have eight-foot ceilings. It's time for me to either remodel or move. I, I, I've, I've got to do something about that. I've, I've been made aware of it. And this explains why getting more stuff never solves the problem. Because this tension is actually an appetite. And when you feed an appetite, it grows. And it's not just about, about money. It can be about anything. Any appetite that you and I have, when you feed it, it expands it. It fuels it. And so every day, someone is feeding our appetites. Therefore, we are never satisfied or we have the temptation to never be satisfied with where we live and what we drive and what, what we do and how flat our TV is. To be fair, though, there is nothing wrong with marketing. Marketing is an honorable profession. Some of the most creative people in the world work for marketing firms. However, there is something wrong with having no margin. And it's unsettling when we have so much stuff that we can't give to meaningful causes because we have no margin. And hear me, no matter how much money you make, if you have no margin, you have no peace. It doesn't matter what, what level of, of financial status you have acquired. If you have no margin, you have no peace. So one other thing I want to make clear right off the bat is this. Not all discontentment is bad. So we can have a discontentment with where we are in life. We can have discontentment with a habit. And we look at that habit and we say, you know what? I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of this thing controlling me. And I'm discontent with it. I'm tired of where I am with a certain circumstance in life. I'm discontent with it. And so it drives you to make a healthy choice. 
um, some of the world's uh, biggest uh, problems have been solved by starting with people being discontent. You look at Ill- illnesses, I mean, cancer awareness and cancer research and clean water and food crisis and equality. All of these things started with someone or a group of someones saying, hey, I am discontent with where this is. This is my opinion. If you believe in that too, let's rally. Now let's mobilize and let's get something done a, about it. And so discontentment has led to healthy things. But... This kind of discontentment, it's almost a holy rejection of what's going on around us. We look at it and we say, there's got to be a line here and I've got to do something about that. Well, here is the difference between an unhealthy uh, discontentment and a healthy discontentment. And that is this. The people who make the world a better place do not reject discontentment. They just aim it in the right direction. So that they aren't saying, I'm going to pretend that I'm not discontent. No, they take all that energy and they aim it in in, in the right direction to do something about it. So herein lies the secret of taming this beast. This is what allows us to look at this and billboards and social media and have conversations and experience the world around us and still maintain contentment. The beast that is in us to want more. You cannot treat discontentment by deciding I'm not going to be discontent. It won't work. Because it's, so, it's such a part of us. It's like, it's like us saying, I am going to choose today to no longer want food. I'm going to choose today to no longer want water. No, it is something that is in us. You can't just say, I'm not going to be discontent. But you have to replace it. And when you do, you will discover life. Okay, let me show you. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We were in Paul's letter last week in the same chapter, and I'm going to use the same thing again this week because he's doing such a great job. I want to go to verse 6. This is not something we used last week, and I want this to be the foundation of the whole message. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Let's read this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. When you break this down, this word godliness means God-likeness, meaning to be or to choose to be like God. And we know that God has a lot of great characteristics, but on the tip of that spear of his character is, is putting others first. He loved us to the point that he gave his son, and there's nothing more selfless that you can do than that. To say, I'm going to love you, we just sang about the reckless love of God, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. So God-likeness with contentment, which means I'm glad for what I have, and I can say no to the things I don't. That's contentment is great gain. Now, this word great, when we look it up in in the Greek, this is actually where we get the word mega. Okay, so he's saying huge gain, mega gain. That when, when you have godliness and contentment, 
You have mega gain. This is what Paul is trying to tell Timothy. And then he goes on and he wants to remind him of just simple life principle. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7, he says this, We brought nothing into the world. And he's telling him, hey, actually, you were perfectly content when you got here. And you were loved and you were cherished the most when you had nothing. And I want some of you to hear this because you're at a point in your spiritual growth where you're stuck right here. And so let let your spirit really grab this. This is Paul's way of saying to us and to Timothy, you have value beyond what you have. So he's trying to reteach this. As adults, somehow we've missed this. And we've listened to a lie that says, you are valued based upon what you possess. So we spend a lot of energy trying to show our family first, and then our friends, and then the world what we've got. It's almost a, a subculture, a lifestyle of show and tell. Until you have the next garage sale, then you give it all away and you start all over again to trump somebody else who has more than you. And it's this constant temptation, this this itch that we just can't seem to scratch. And we just got this, this inner turmoil of going, I've got to rise above, and then I've got to rise above again, and I gotta do it again, and I gotta do it again. And he's like, listen, you didn't have anything when you got here. And then he goes on at the end of verse 7. And we can take nothing out of it. Okay, this is, this is gut check time. He's like, Timothy, listen, you got to get this, man. You didn't come in with anything, and you're not leaving with anything. As a matter of fact, you're going to leave everything. All of it. You're going to take any stuff. This is so good for us. We're, all the stuff we have is going to get left. Somebody else is going to deal with it. Somebody else is going to go through it. Somebody else is going to examine its value. Somebody else is going to give it away or cash it in. or Somebody else is going to take on your stuff. You're leaving everything. So this leads us to a very challenging question, and I hope it disturbs you for a while. I hope it disturbs me for a while, and here it is. Other than stuff... What will you leave behind? Other than stuff, what will you leave behind? This is to say, you came with nothing, you leave with nothing, and in between those those two things is, is a gap that is an opportunity to impact humanity. Okay, To use Paul's words, will there be any great gain? Will the world have gained anything because you were here? Or are you just going to leave your stuff? Paul continues in verse 8. And verse 8 is really about this. Paul is saying, I want you to know that I'm not being a hypocrite here. Paul is saying, I want you to know that I'm practicing the things that I am preaching. And I want you to remember the context of Paul's life. Before Damascus... Paul was a man of wealth. 
He was a citizen of Rome, highly educated, and had a seat at the table for every conversation pertaining to how to destroy Christianity. In other words, Paul has had a history with stuff. He knows what it's like to have. So strong was he, at some point he even brags about himself. And at one point, he even used his status to get out of trouble. He said, I want to remind you that I am a Roman citizen. Now, you mess with me, they're going to mess with you. Okay, so are you sure you want to do this? And they let him go. So we're talking about a man of status, about a man of clout, highly educated, and was involved in destroying Christianity. Paul is used to having stuff and a network. He knows what it's like. But he goes on, and what he's about to tell us, he's not saying, listen, I have to do this, or you have to do this, or we have to do it, or Timothy has to do it. No, he's simply wanting us to know, I'm doing what I'm talking about. So in verse 8, he says this, but if we, being his, his traveling companions, okay, uh, Paul traveled with Silas, he traveled with Barnabas, he traveled with, with some other people. But he says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. He's saying, listen, I, I've, I've dealt with this in my own life. And Timothy, where I'm at right now is if, if you can feed me and clothe me, I'm good with the rest of it. Now, Timothy, I'm not asking you to do that. I'm not asking for this to be a doctrine. I'm not asking you to go and tell all of the churches this. I just want you to know there's some credibility that comes with this conversation. Because, Timothy, you and I both know who I was and what I had. And now my life is so dedicated that if I have food and clothes, I'm good. So this leads us to another question. Well, what did Apostle Paul leave behind? Well, he left behind letters that shaped the Western culture for 2,000 years. He left behind a theology that disrupted an entire empire. And he left behind a string of churches on the Mediterranean rim that would impact Gentile church planning for 300 years. That's what he left behind. And Paul is saying, if we don't shift our awareness from this to what we really want to leave behind, we're going to be at a conflict at some point. We're going to have a menu end of stuff and a subtrahend of stuff and a difference of zero. All you're going to do is have stuff, and you're going to leave it. You're going to leave your stuff. You came with nothing, you're leaving with nothing. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, let's go on. He says this statement. Those who want to get rich, and I want to, I want to stop right there and tell you what, what this actually means. He's talking about wealth for the sake of it, for the sake of being wealthy. I want to be wealthy just because. I want to be wealthy because people are going to look at me and say, there goes a wealthy guy. I want to be wealthy so that I get, I get the opportunity uh, to, to have status. I, I, I want to rise above. I want to look down on the people around me, and even though I don't have to brag about it, I know, and they, they, they know. I just, I just want wealth for wealth's sake. This is what he's talking about. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, this little Greek word here, plunge, uh, when, when you look it up, it's got some 
strength in its meaning. And so the only thing I can do without you reading it yourself is to give you imagery. And so this is what this little word plunge means. Okay, You're driving along and suddenly there's no road and you plunge into the ravine below. You're paddling along and everything is great and suddenly you plunge over the rapids. You're standing on the edge of the cliff and suddenly you plunge into the rocks below. This is what it means. It's sudden. It comes on you. It's quick. And it's dangerous. But the truth about this little word is this. You never plunge on purpose. It's too quick. It's too sudden. You don't see it coming. You can't develop a strategy around it. you got to just completely avoid it. And this is the language Paul is using with us. And so what Paul is saying is this. Unbridled discontentment is dangerous. That when we let this get in our lives, it is dangerous. And we may have a lot of great things going on, on, on the outside. We may come in here and give and serve and worship and do all the things that the eye can de- detect would make us a follower. But if you got unbridled discontentment on the inside, it is dangerous. And I want to be careful because I'm not, I'm not preaching us into, into poverty. It's, it's not wrong for you to have stuff. Just don't let your stuff have you. Unbridled discontentment. He's saying, listen, if you don't get a hold of this, Timothy, if you don't see this, you're going to plunge. It's going to come on you. For us, it has the, the option to plunge us in the credit card debt, to plunge us into signing a lease we shouldn't sign, to plunge us into a place of no savings to plunge us into no no giving, and you're forever stuck in a status of, I wish I could do more. But we have fallen into discontentment and surrounded ourselves and hemmed ourselves in so tightly that we will see a good cause and never be able to support it because unbridled discontentment is dangerous. So 1 Timothy 6 and 10, he goes on, he hits us with this, and I I briefly passed by this last week, but I want to spend just two minutes on it. He says, for the love of money is the root of all all evil. Now, you and I would look at that and we'd say, I mean, no one really, I mean, (laughs) no one really loves money, right? Wrong. You just don't see love of money in the mirror. Like, you, you, you don't see jealousy in the mirror. You don't see envy in the mirror. You don't see the love of money in the mirror. And in 20 years of counseling and 25 years of ministry, I've never had a single person come up to me and say, Kevin, I know the problem. I have a love for money. Because it's blind to us. We don't, we don't notice that we've got it, okay? So I want to give us a, a very small, quick litmus test on how do I know if I have a love for money? Well, here, here, here they are. Okay, the first one is this. What are you willing to do for it? What are you willing to do for money? When we love something, we go to extremes for it. We drive all night to see that certain girl. We take on another job so that we can be able to, to take her out and entertain and woo and do all those things. Why? Because we're stricken. We're in love. We go to extremes. 
Sometimes when, when we want money so bad, we develop a lifestyle in, in order to get it. I'm, I'm going to take my 40 hours, I'm going to make them 60. And what, what we don't realize is, is, is who's hurting because of that. Okay? So the second thing is who are you willing to hurt for it? Who, who if, if you're in love with money, you're willing to hurt somebody. If we look at that career-wise, how many times would we lie about what we've, we've done and, and, and our, our value to get ahead, to get a raise, to, to step around somebody, to put our, hand, our, our foot on top of somebody's head, to get to the next rung quicker? Who are we willing to hurt, to lie about, to taint someone's reputation that we might have gain? Love of money will drive you to that. And third, who or what gets prioritized behind it? Meaning this, is there someone in your home competing against your stuff? Do you have kids at home going, hey, dad, hey, mom, there's no way I can compete against your stuff. So when you're ready, I'll, I'll, I'll be here. Um, I'm going to keep on growing. I'm going to keep on maturing. But... It'd be nice to have a dad that's present. Mom, it'd be nice to have you around. Who's getting prioritized behind it? So what are you willing to do? Who are you willing to hurt? And who or what gets prioritized behind it? Now, after Paul talks about all this, he's about to hit a big crescendo. Okay, stay with me. He doesn't just look at Timothy and say, stop it. Don't do it anymore. He's got a bigger plan than that. As a matter of fact, a lot of times you and I develop not goals, okay? And not goals come with a neg negativity to them. We say things like, I'm not going to be like, like my dad. I'm not going to have a, par uh, a marriage like my uh, parents. I'm not going to let my kids grow up the way that they grew up. I'm not going to be discontent. We have not goals, but we can't just have not, not goals. Paul wants Timothy to know what to do with all this, okay? So watch this. So the music is about to change. There's about to be this big crescendo, this big crux, the, the biggest moment, the summit of the message. Here it is. So Paul says in verse 11, but you, man of God, and I think if they were standing face to face, he'd put his finger in his chest, but you, man of God, flee from all this, okay? What is this? The constant pursuit of more. And then he flips it on him and he says, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You got to take the discontentment and you got to shift it. You gotta, you gotta aim it in the right direction. You're not gonna be able to stop it, but if you can take all that energy and you can move it and put it in, in, in the right spot. Okay, let me tell you what I mean. It's a domino. And um, this week, a friend of mine gave, gave me a book, and in the book was this amazing illustration. It couldn't come at a better time. Basically, there was a, a physicist. He was really interested in the energy behind the falling of a domino. And what he began to develop was that he found out that one domino, and this is a two-inch domino, that one domino has the, the energy when falling 
to knock another domino behind it down that is twice its size. So a two-inch domino can knock down a four-inch domino. And then that four-inch domino knocks down an eight-inch domino, and that eight-inch is 16-inch, and that's 16 to 32. And he began to test it out, and sure enough, it worked. So the very small domino, I, I want you to see this in your mind, so I'm, I'm going to play it out here. Within five steps, this two-inch domino can knock down a three-foot domino. Within 18 steps, what starts as the energy behind a two-inch domino within 18 steps can knock down a domino the height of the Tower of Pisa. Within 23 steps, the Eiffel Tower. Within 31 steps, 3,000 feet higher than Mount Everest. And within 57 steps, this two-inch domino creates the energy to knock down a domino the height between your feet and the distance to the moon. What I'm saying is this. We have to be very careful with what we let start as small in our lives because one small click turns into a monumental motion that oftentimes is irreversible. And we look in our lives and what started as a small desire falls onto a bigger one and a bigger one and a bigger one and a bigger one and a bigger one. And we say, wait, 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 wait. And it's just moving so quickly. In the same sense, you aim that discontentment, you aim that, that energy toward God, and you pursue godliness and faith and endurance and love, and you pursue those things. You pursue the right thing, and all of a sudden that, that energy builds momentum in, in your life, and you are turning loose, again, monumental, irreversible motion that started as a gentle click in your life. So let me end with this. 1 Timothy 6, 18. Stay, stay with me. Give, me. give me two minutes. Watch what Paul says here. He says, command them to do good and be rich in deeds and, and be generous. And he goes on in verse 19 and he says, so that. Anytime you see so that in the New Testament, we've got to pay attention. Command them to do good and be rich in deeds and be generous so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In other words, he's saying, you will take hold of a life that leaves life in its wake. You will take hold of a life that when you are gone, there is life. This is how you leave something that is not just the sum of things. Because the value of a life is always determined by how much of it was given away. Every funeral service we go to, we're reminded of this. We stand over our parents, our friends, other family members, and we say things about them that were the most impacting things and the most valuable things that we took away. No one ever stands at a funeral and says, Dad, listen, I just want to thank you for leaving me a house. Or, Dad, I want to thank you because to you, thanks to you, I'm now a millionaire. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but the priority is always on the value of that person, what they did, who they were, why we're going to miss them. 
The value of a life is always based upon what part of it was given away. But godliness with contentment is great gain. I want you to bow your heads with me today. I just want to talk to your heart for just a second.